0: The resurrection of Jesus is the miracle of all miracles, and our hope is dependent upon it. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19, the Apostle Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, your faith is is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Believing in the resurrection of the dead is no doubt the hardest thing for any man to believe. Now, all who seriously give thought to the mean of life certainly want it to be so, because life makes absolutely no sense without it. But how do you prove it? No one living on earth today has ever witnessed a verifiable resurrection from the dead. Many have been... Declared dead and brought back to life, but to quote Miracle Max from the Princess Bride, they were just mostly dead. Jesus, however, was certified dead by a Roman soldier who drove a spear into his chest cavity after he had been crucified by highly experienced executioners. He actually died. On the cross, and then rose from the dead three days later as he said he would. Still, there were apparently some Christians in Corinth who insisted that no one would actually rise from the dead, to which Paul responded. But if it's impossible for anyone to rise from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise either. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And Paul offered as proof of Jesus' resurrection the fact that the risen Christ had appeared to more than 500 brethren and that most of those who had seen him were still alive at the time of the writing. And not only were there hundreds of eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, there were still living in Paul's day some who had actually seen Jesus raise others from the dead as well, because even before Jesus rose from the grave, he had demonstrated his power over death. And we come to the first account of such in our text for today. We're in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. And it came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her, And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Nain was in Galilee about a day's journey from Capernaum, southwest of Nazareth. Jesus, his disciples, and a large multitude were approaching the city, and they were almost to the city gate when they were stopped by a funeral procession. Jesus quickly discerned that the dead man was the only son of his mother and that she was a widow. How he did so, we're not told. Someone might have told him, or he just may have sensed it from the high level of grief being expressed. Not only had the woman walking behind the corpse lost a loved one, she had lost her sole means of support. Without someone to provide for her, she would lose everything, and her dire situation no doubt added to the intensity of the mourning. The heartfelt grieving of the friends was no doubt also raised a few decibels by the professional mourners who always accompanied funeral processions. They were wailing and shrieking, and the mother was weeping. Jesus' response to the weeping mother, however, seems a bit strange. He said to her, do not weep or stop weeping. Now, weeping is the natural response to death. Jesus himself would join Martha in weeping over the death of Lazarus. So why did he say, stop weeping and How did he say it? You know, reading it, we have no way to judge the tone of voice. But Luke does note that Jesus felt compassion for her before he said it, so it's doubtful that it was spoken harshly or judgmentally. He wasn't reprimanding her, telling her to, you know, get a grip and stop bawling. Perhaps he was trying to comfort her. I'm sure we've all taken someone into our arms and tried to comfort them by saying, now, now, there's no need to cry. But she had every reason to cry. Her only son was dead, and she would soon be homeless. So why did he tell a grieving mother to stop weeping? Maybe we can gain some understanding of it from the next time he tells someone to stop weeping. At the death of a child. In the 8th chapter, we're going to meet Jairus and learn of the death of his daughter. We'll look at it in more detail when we get there. But for now, we want to note that Jesus told those gathered around the dead child, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. Being assured that a loved one is not dead, but only asleep certainly brings comfort. And Paul reminded us of that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14, when he wrote, That we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Knowing that we will one day See those who've fallen asleep in Jesus certainly brings comfort and helps to dry up our tears. But it still doesn't explain why Jesus told the man's mother to stop weeping, unless, of course, he was planning to do something, right then and there, to take those tears away, which, as we now see, he was. Verses 14 and 15. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. After telling the mother not to weep, Jesus proceeded to the coffin, or more likely an open funeral bier upon which the shrouded corpse was being carried. And then he did the unthinkable for a Jew. He touched it. Now Jews whitewashed tombs so they wouldn't accidentally defile themselves by touching one. But then again, Jesus has already demonstrated that he wasn't overly concerned about ceremonial cleanliness. He was willing to defile himself by touching a leper. So touching a coffin was no big deal for him. Let us touch. The pallbearers came to a halt, and Jesus spoke to the dead man. Young man, I say to you, arise. He didn't ask God to raise the man. He spoke directly to him or to the spirit that had departed from his body. And at Jesus' command, the spirit reentered the young man's body. He then sat up and began to speak. We're not told what he said. Hi, Mom, I'm back. Thanks, Jesus. Call my publisher. I've got to write a book about this experience. (laughs) I think we'll settle for the fact that Jesus simply spoke when he rose from the dead. And then Jesus did something very, very beautiful. He gave the young man back to his mother. And that, my friend, is something only Jesus can do. He is the only one who can reunite those who have been separated by death. And we're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to the day when all who are asleep in Christ will be reunited with those who are alive. And it will happen when he returns. We have every assurance That that day is coming. In fact, the Lord who promised to do it demonstrated his power to do it while he was here. During his time on earth, he commanded the dead to rise on at least three occasions and gave them back to their loved ones. And then at his own resurrection... The rocks split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who were asleep were raised. Indeed, he is the one who takes away our need to weep. Because he is the one who can say to us, arise. And those who witnessed the raising of the widow's son said they had been visited by God himself. Verses 16 and 17. And fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report concerning him. Went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Now, when Luke says that fear gripped them, he means awe or wonder. Fear in the sense of being unable to fully comprehend what they had just witnessed. But still, they glorified God. They knew God was behind it, even if they didn't fully understand Jesus' role. In it. But they did praise him. They praised him by calling him a great prophet. They said a great prophet had arisen among them. When they saw what Jesus did, they immediately thought of Elijah and Elisha, the two prophets in the Old Testament who raised the dead. They assumed Jesus was in the same league as the prophets of old. That was a high compliment. But not high enough. Even a simple reading of the accounts makes evident that what Jesus did far surpassed what Elijah and Elisha did. In 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, we read the account of Elijah raising the son of the widow of Zarephath. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Then in 2 Kings. Chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we read how Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite couple. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him and the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said call this Shunammite so he called her And when she came in to him, he said, take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son and went out. Now let's read again what Jesus did. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Notice the difference? Elijah and Elisha both prayed to God and asked him to raise the dead. And then they stretched themselves on the lads in what appears to be a form of resuscitation. And maybe the lads were just mostly dead. Whether that was the case or not, neither Elijah nor Elisha spoke to the dead and by their own authority told them to arise. Only Jesus has the power And authority to do that. Because he is God. The people didn't know how right they had it when they said God has visited his people. They were probably using that phrase as it was usually used in the Old Testament to refer to God blessing his people. In Ruth. We read of the Lord visiting his people by giving them food. And in 1 Samuel, it says the Lord visited Hannah when she was finally able to conceive and bear children. The aged priest, Zacharias, however, had a fuller understanding of the meaning of God visiting us. After seeing the baby Jesus, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Jesus actually redeemed us by visiting us. And it was his power over death that accomplished that redemption. He demonstrated that power by raising a few from death and then made redemption available for all by rising from the dead himself. Indeed, because he has the power over death, there is no need to weep, at least not for long. Even in the face of death, we can stop weeping because we know that when the Lord descends with a shout from the archangel and at the trumpet of God, those who have fallen asleep in him will rise and we who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds of the air. When the roll is called up yonder, all who have been redeemed by the risen Christ will be there. And as Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. There is no need to weep.
1: When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share. When his chosen one shall gather to their home beyond the skies, the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, Till setting sun talk of all his wondrous love and care then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done yonder I'll be there is called up yonder.
0: Father, we sing that song with confidence, not because of our good character, not because of our good works, not because we come to church. We sing it with confidence because the risen Christ has given to us eternal life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Each Lord's Day, we are confronted with the body and blood of Christ. But someday, we'll see him face to face. Verses 1 and 4.
1: to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face what will it be when with rapture I behold Him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Face I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky, face to face in all his glory, I shall see Oh, blissful moment, face to face to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer Jesus Christ.
2: first corinthians we find probably one of the most familiar texts that we use with communion as paul's addressing the christians at corinth he says for i received from the lord that which i delivered to you that the lord jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the next part, to continue this on, we don't use that often. It was in the admonition to the church at Corinth, but I think it can be an encouragement to us also. For as often as you eat this bread, and I'm sorry, it dropped down. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, I think this kind of goes back with what Tina touched on so well while ago. When we come before him now, this is part of our worship to him, and I think we owe him a few moments when we shut out all the cares and problems of the world, concentrate on the event that we're remembering it right now. If there's something that's happened this week that you think might have put some distance between you and God, or maybe there's Something you've tucked away in a dark corner of your past that you're trying to forget because you think the Lord can never forgive me for this. Don't let it worry you. Remember, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in Matthew, Christ himself said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. For those of you that are agri-knowledge challenged, a yoke is used to tie two animals together. And it was always recommended that you had two animals that were the same size and strength. Otherwise, the larger or the stronger one would carry most of the load. With Christ, he doesn't care about that. He wants you to be yoked to him. He'll take that load for you if you'll let him. So as you come around the service and around the table now, pull out anything you might think might be separating you from the Lord, and then you know you can be assured that you're partaking in a worthy manner.